Please be seated. It's good to see all of you here. Good morning. Um, Paul's not wrong. I um, do my fair share of thrift store shopping, and uh, some of your stuff might not find it to Mission of Yahweh, frankly. <laughs> it might end up in my closet. Um, I, I would like to invite you to bow with me just one more time, um, just listening to some of your stories, and you know, I'm not here to be a talking head. I'm here to pastor and to shepherd, and I hear some of the, the joys, but also some of the burdens and some of the ups and downs of your lives. Lord, we come to you now. Lord, we need you. Lord, we praise you this morning. Lord, we look to you as our hope. We thank you for the sun that rises again, faithful as you are. We place our trust in you today, and we know, Lord, that you are in the business of resurrection and doing good things. So, Lord, we lay our lives at your feet and trust. We turn our wills over to you once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, we, we've been in this series called CBE. It's teaching. It's kind of intellectual heavy, not that it's all about intellectualism. Uh, teaching is important because the formation of our minds, I believe, leads to the formation of right actions. As I've shared in the past, orthodoxy leads to correct orthopraxy. Orthodoxy meaning right belief and right understanding leading to right action. We cannot act or behave correctly as Christians if we don't understand correctly. So off and on, you know, as I preach, there are times where I'll talk to orthodoxy and I'll talk to right belief. There are also times where I'll do series that are more practical. Next Sunday, we're going to start a series that's going to be more on the uh, right, right life, right living side of things. It's going to be called soul food, soul food. And it's going to be about spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines that we can practice. So it's going to be more practical, things like uh, forgiveness, hospitality, truth-telling, um, confession, prayer, Bible meditation, learning these disciplines that will help us to live good lives. Um, but today, we're going to close off this teaching series with the book of Revelation. Um, and that's appropriate. It's the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And as we finish with this, uh, it's going to be kind of a tricky one. It's going to be a little bit teaching heavy, but there's also going to be, I think, uh, practical nuggets that you can take things that I think really minister. Uh, I really, I, as I prepared Revelation, I feel like I just dipped my toe in this vast sea. And even that was difficult. It was searing. But what I got out of it, there's, there's riches in Revelation if you will patiently work through it. And work through it deeply. So we're going to work through Revelation today um, along three headings. And I'm going to teach, first of all, about historical context. Historical context of Revelation. Again, this is going to, you know, at this point it's going to sound like you're going to be in a classroom, but I assure you it's going to speak to you. So historical context, number one. Number two, and young people, just hang with me. I'm going to try to speak to you as well. I'm going to try to speak to you as well. Number two, literary genre, <laughs> literary genre. And number three, uh, historical context. No. Oh, 
That's wrong. If you look in your notes, that third heading is actually supposed to be interpretive approaches. Interpretive approaches. You can cross that out. So first heading is historical context. Secondly is literary genre. And third is interpretive approaches. The first is historical context. Um, How many of you have watched the Left Behind series or read the books? Now, that's one way to understand Revelation. I want you to understand it's one way. It's one way. Um, And it's important for us uh, in order to understand Revelation uh, with a a, a solid footing to understand the context when it was written. The context when Revelation was written was the early church period somewhere between, somewhere between 40 to 60 years after Jesus. So it's fairly recent, in, or, or recent for at least to Jesus, 40 to 60 years after the life of Jesus. And there's two options. You can actually fill this in, the, fill this in your bulletin, in, your, in the blanks. The first option is the year 70. 70. It's very early, just 30 years after Jesus. And some people believe that it's the year 70 because in the year 70, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was completely destroyed. But Revelation talks about the temple as if it wasn't destroyed. So some people believe that Revelation had to be written before the destruction of the temple. And so they say it could have been written before the year 70. Before the year 70. And therefore, all of this talk, all of this scary stuff that you read about in Revelation, like the mark of the beast and Babylon, and uh, it, it references, it's talking about Jews and Jerusalem. It's saying, you turned against Jesus, and therefore this is your punishment. And so people who believe that Revelation was written in the year 70 are holding to this view that the Bible, uh, or holding to this view that Revelation is talking about the Jews. Babylon and all of the, all of the, all of Babylon and all of these references to the beast, it's, it's, it's basically a strong criticism a strong criticism, the word is polemic. So if I use the word polemic, you know that I'm talking about this kind of attacking spirit. So Revelation has this polemic, and it could be directed at the Jewish people. It could be directed at the Jewish people. If it was written in 70. Now track with me. I think it's more accurate to say that Revelation was written in the year 95. That's the second option, the second fill in the blank. Not so much 70, but the year, seven, the year 95. 60 years after Jesus. The reason for this is because there are some sources, very, very old sources, that talk about the book of Revelation being written in their lifetime. And they refer to it as being written during the time of the emperor Domitian. That would, that would say that Revelation was written somewhere around the time of the year 95 AD. And I think this, this uh, especially as I've read some of these Outside sources, I think, I think it holds a lot of weight. In fact, in fact, scholarly consensus agrees that Revelation was written around the time 95. It was written around the time 95. Um, listen carefully to this here because sometimes when we read Revelation, we want to just toss out the scholars. Why do we have to listen to the scholars? I can read Revelation. I can interpret it on my own. I don't need to listen to the scholars. Actually, the scholars, they're, they're holy people like you and I. If we've read Revelation once, twice, maybe three times, they've read Revelation thousands of times. In order to be a scholar, you, you sit before the book 
on your knees. You read it many, many times. You're not just doing scientific method. You're wrestling. What does this mean? Who is this talking about? So you don't just, we don't just toss out what the scholars say and say, I can interpret Revelation just fine as they. Because these are holy people reading a holy book. So I think there's a lot of weight when we say the scholarly consensus believes that Revelation was written in the year 95. Um, and that based on... Um, ancient sources that talk about the book of Revelation. If indeed, hang with me, if indeed Revelation was written in the year 95, that means two things. It means that this is the time when worship of the emperor, the Roman emperor, was becoming more common. So there's this phenomenon of emperor worship where uh, the, the Roman emperor at the time, Domitian, if he was in the town, you had to bow and you had to worship him. If there was an image of the emperor, and there was, in Ephesus, in Ephesus, there's historical record of uh, a giant statue of Emperor Domitian, and you had to bow and worship. And if you didn't, well, that led to the second thing. Obviously, it led to persecution. So it reminds me of this old album. I don't know any of you, if you've been a Christian since the dinosaurs there's this um, old CD I remember buying when I was a lot younger, and it was by a Christian musician named Keith Green. And if you look on the cover of this album, there's this illustration of a mass of people all bowing like this, and they're all bowing to somebody on this big elephant, and on the elephant there's some kind of a ruler, or some kind of a, a king or something like that. But there's one person that's not bowing not bowing, and he's just standing there like a Jesus hippie, you know, wearing, you know, some, you know, old-fashioned, you know, it's like, it's an ancient depiction, and this long-haired dude is just standing, saying, I'm not going to bow. The title of the album is No Compromise, Keith Green, No Compromise, and then you see a guard pointing at him, saying, you, I'm going to get you. You're in trouble. You're not bowing. The spirit of no compromise is what marked the Christians at the time. When the emperor came into town, everybody bowed except the Christians. The Christians would not bow. They would not worship. And therefore, there was intense persecution. Not only was there intense persecution, uh, John, or the author of Revelation, is predicting that it will get worse. It's going to get worse. So if we understand the book of Revelation as being written in the year 95, what we're talking about is all of this image, all of this language about the beast and the image of the beast. What we're talking about is not an actual monster or we're not expecting, you know, uh, I mean, you, you can, based on some interpretations, people are expecting some, literally a beast. But what we're actually talking about is Rome. That the beast in Revelation is Rome. The image of the beast is the Roman emperor. And when it talks about Babylon, Babylon will fall, Babylon will fall. What we're talking about is the city of Rome. Now, this is important because when we read Revelation, we make a lot of different assumptions. When we talk about a beast, you know, people have talked about the beast as being, you know, a rising European power, or maybe, uh, you know, the Antichrist was Hitler or something like that. There's a lot of theories. But we cannot ignore the context. If we say that John wrote the book of Revelation 
with us in mind 2,000 years later or with the 20th century in mind, that's kind of one-sided. It's narcissistic. It's historically self-centered of us to think that. While I do think that there's some truth to that, we would make a mistake if we think John is just completely ignoring his present context. We'd make a mistake if we think John is not concerned with what's going on at his own time. So, very possible that John, writing during the year 95 AD, is talking a lot, a lot, a lot about Rome, Rome, Rome. And so that tells us two things. Number one, a lot of the polemic, a lot of the attack language that we see in the book of Revelation is very likely directed at Rome. And number two, what we can also deduct from this is that things are going to get worse for the Christians who refuse to bow to the emperor. In his time, things are going to get worse for the Christians. So, Pastor Wayne, thank you for this wonderful history lesson. That's great. That's the context of Revelation, but how in the world, what does that mean for us today? So, great. John was talking about Rome and beastly powers. By the way, when you look throughout Christian literature, including the Bible, Paul talks about fighting wild beasts at Ephesus, if I, if I, if I quoted that correctly. And throughout ancient Christian script, uh, literature, they, they talk about the wild beasts. This was commonly code language for empires and powers. The wild beasts, beast, it was a reference to Rome or Assyria or Babylon or Greece. So how do we interpret all of this stuff and this language about beasts and powers and the image of the beast and the Antichrist? How do we interpret that? If this is talking about Rome, how do we interpret that for us today? What does this mean for us today, especially when the Roman Empire is no longer here? Not only is the Roman Empire not here, but honestly, life isn't all that bad for us Christians. For those of us Christians, life is not really that bad. Now, we can say, no, life is really bad. The government is turning to the far left, and we saw what happened with Hobby Lobby, and we're constantly under attack. Well, in one sense, yes, we can talk about, you know, the secular versus, the, you know, the secular nation, the nation's becoming increasingly secular, it's attacking Christians. Okay, we can say that. But to this level, to this level, I don't think that there's a direct correlation. I don't think that we can compare what we in America, the greatest nation in the world, by the way, they, they were the oppressed by Rome. We are citizens of, of Rome, in a sense. So it's, it's, we're hard-pressed, I would say, to make the connection to say that we are immediately, we can immediately place ourselves in the shoes of these people saying, we know what it's like to be persecuted like they were, and, and we, know, we, know, you know, we know what it's like to you know, face Babylon, to face Rome, to face the powers that be. Because honestly, as American Christians, we really, we really have it good. We have it really good. In many ways, we... In some ways, we, have, we are Rome. So there's a little bit of self-critique there. Um, so how do we interpret this? The application... 
that I think of. Fill in the blank. I think we need to always be wary of beastly power in whatever form that may take. Number one, we need to look for it within ourselves. The abuse of power. I've been a pastor for a number of years now. I know when pastoral ministry can get ugly, when there's too much manipulation, too much use of power, when there's too much politicking. That's when things are not operating well. And I also know when it's operating well. (laughs) Don't worry, guys, it's operating well now. (laughs) Be aware of beastly power. Be aware when we're using secrecy, when we're using lying, when we're using authority or strong-handedness to push forward or be aware of beastly power, not just with ourselves, but also be aware of beastly power when you're looking at it, when you're looking at it in the world. And it's tough to see this, especially when we are really the most powerful nation in the world, America is. America, I also believe, is the most enlightened, the most free country in the world. So we are hard-pressed to look for power as it rises. You might look in Syria and see what's happening with Bashar al-Assad. We might look in different parts uh, of the the world where there's horrible things going on. But we continually have to recognize beastly power. Just hold that thought because it's going to get more nuanced. So that's the first thing, the historical context. The second heading is the literary genre the literary genre. For those of you that are visiting Woven for the first time, I don't, we don't always kind of talk this kind of heavy on uh, teaching and stuff like that, but um, literary genre. The literary genre, what I mean by that is this. How many of you uh, opened Facebook this week? And if you open Facebook, you know, it has like those scintillating news articles on the side, like, you know... Um, Somebody, somebody, uh, I don't know, grew a three-headed dog or something like that. And you're like, I got to, I have to click on that. I can't. So we, we, you read this, this ridiculous article or, you know, Trump said the latest thing or you click on this and you have to read. And you read this, this atrocious story that just killed about half of your brain cells and wasted, uh, you know, two productive work hours. Now, would you read that with the same lens that you read something that is, um, let's say, an official historical document, fiction. I'm sorry, nonfiction. Would you read it with the same weight? Would you read something written by a Pulitzer Prize-winning author with the same weight as somebody that just threw out a blog post? Would you read something that's written by the New York Times the same way that you would read something by the more conservative Wall Street Journal. We read differently, is that correct? We we have the ability, all of us, whatever education, level of education we have, we all have the ability to read differently. The book of Revelation is not a blog post, nor is it, uh, you know, written like a newspaper article. It's written with specific genres. And people at the time when they read it, they understood The problem that we have today is it comes on the same type of paper as all of the other pages of the Bible, and we don't 
we don't understand the context and we read it with the same weight. We read Revelation with the same weight that we would read the book of Psalms or that we would read the Gospel of John. We have to read Revelation understanding its genre. In fact, genres. Three types of genres that you can fill in the blank. The first literary genre is prophecy. How many of you like prophecy? <laughs> it's like fortune-telling. Actually, it's not like fortune-telling. When we think of prophecy, we think of something that's going to read your palm and tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. But biblical prophecy as a genre was not concerned about what's happening tomorrow. To speak prophetically is more concerned about what's happening in history now. And oftentimes when somebody spoke prophetically, and you'll see the prophetic genre, of course, the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophetic genre spoke with judgment, with judgment. And, you know, I understand this. Sometimes, sometimes a good shepherd has to speak words of encouragement. Sometimes, sometimes a shepherd has to speak words that are warning. A prophetic word speaks sometimes with judgment, actually oftentimes with judgment. So prophecy as a genre, it can sound harsh. It's supposed to sound harsh, but it's not talking about the future. It's talking about what's happening right now. It's saying, uh, unless we shape up, we'll have to ship out. So that's prophecy, the genre. The second type of genre, there's... See, John kind of, he uses different styles of writing. The second type of genre is something called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. And what apocalyptic genre means is, it's kind of like this. When you're in grade school, and you're walking down the hall with your books, and all of a sudden you see Boris, and you're like, oh my gosh, and you turn around, you run away, and he says, and he sees you and he says, Wayne, come over here. And you're like, oh my gosh. He grabs you, he slams you up against the lockers and Boris, this is not autobiographical by any means. <laughs> he throws you on the floor and then he gives you a wet willy and he does all these things, gives you wedgie and horrible things. And then you look at him and you speak an apocalyptic and you say, Boris, you're going to get what's coming to you one day. And Boris says, when? And you say, on April 24th, 2019, at 3.45 p.m. after class. Is that what we say? No. When you're on the floor and Boris' sloppy saliva finger is in your ear, you're saying, you're going to get what's coming to you someday. The day is coming. Mark my words, Boris. It may not be from me, but somebody is gonna, somebody's going to show you that what you're doing is wrong. Justice will come, and we'll, we'll make it right. Justice is coming. Honestly, guys, I don't know how many of you have ever been bullied, or if you've ever bullied. I've been bullied uh, in my childhood, and it really sucks. And when I have a flashback, and I remember I'm like a kid again. I'm like a kid again, and I wonder, where are those guys? And what would I do? <sighs> right? What would I do? You know what I would do? I'd probably be the same kid that I was all those years ago. But you know what gives me peace? 
Not that I have to somehow step up on them or get in their face and say, I'm not afraid of you anymore, man. I don't have to do that. Because you know what gives me peace? The knowledge that they will get what's coming to them. They might have already gotten what's coming to them. In fact, God is just, and maybe they've been humbled. And if they haven't, the day will come. The day will come. Apocalyptic as a genre, you know what it speaks about? It doesn't speak about the future. September 23rd, 2016 or 18, whatever. At this time, he's going to come back. Apocalyptic as a genre, it spoke not about the future history. It didn't speak about the last moment of history. It spoke about the minute after the last minute of history. It spoke, in other words, not about history, but about the, what would happen at the end of history. That's why it's full of all this fantasy language about beasts and numbers and images. Why? Because it's talking about a day to come that will no longer, will no longer even be a day. The end of all time. It's not about the last minute of history. It's about the minute after the last minute of history. It's not saying the last minute is this. It's saying the end is, the, the day will come. The day will come and you will get yours because God is just. So apocalyptic is that type of genre. The third type of genre is letter. And you see this very clearly when you read Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation 3. Just by show of hands, how many of you have actually read Revelation once in the past? Just, you've read it before. Revelation. When you read 2 and 3, the two, two, second and third chapter, you can see this is very similar to the, you know, even the letters of Paul. What you have here are letters addressing uh, certain situations, occasions. And this is very important. This is what many times readers of Revelation uh, fail to see. There are specific occasions. If I, as the pastor of this church, wrote a letter, if I had to be gone for a week or a couple of weeks, and I decided I want to write my congregation a letter, I would speak to specific things that are going on here. I would say, remember, you want to bring the coffee. Remember, we want to set up the light. Remember, I would speak to certain things to our context. Why then do we not assume that John is speaking to a specific context? Why then do we not assume that John the author is speaking to his people or the seven churches? John had the kind of authority to speak to all the churches. Why don't we assume that he's speaking to specific contexts? All of the book of Revelation, I think, is speaking. It's occasion. It's speaking to the occasions. It's speaking to these contexts. And what are these contexts? They are persecution from without. Persecution is coming. And it's a horrible kind of person. It's a kind of thing where Christians would, it doesn't bear repeating. Horrible things are coming. But it's also talking about decay from within. Persecution from without and decay from within. Don't get lazy. Don't slack off. Do the things you did at first. These are the occasions that John, the pastor, is speaking to the Christians in the known world. He's telling them, and this is the application, do the things I did at first. Do the things you did at first love. Just remember, think back when you first became a Christian. 
if, you can, if you've had that moment, when you first decided, I'm going to be a Christian, I'm going to be a Christian from this day forward, remember. Remember the earnestness that you had. Remember the things that you changed. I remember for me, when I first became a Christian, I decided to stop cussing. That was so hard. So I had to learn to stop cussing. And I remember I, I had to change my attitude in a lot of ways. Well, remember the first things that you did. This is what John speaks to the early church. Do the things you did at first love. But we're going to conclude with this third, third and last heading. I'll say it again. It's interpretive approaches. The third and last heading is interpretive approaches. So we started off, we're talking about the historical context. And as best as I can in a 30-minute sermon, I've given you some of the historical context. A lot of it is talking about Rome. It's talking about Rome, and it's talking about that, that generation of the first Christians. Is it only talking about Rome? I don't think it is. I think Revelation is timeless. It's timeless. In one sense, it talks about Rome, but in another sense, it talks about every period in history following and what is to come. What is to come? Every period in history and what is to come. So I'm going to teach now in closing Four interpretive approaches. Four, uh, these are the dominant ways that people have interpreted revelations. Four ways. All of these are imperfect. All of these four interpretive approaches, they don't, they're, they're very flawed. But they all have a kernel of truth to them. All four of them. The first interpretive approach, you can write this down and you can, you can Wikipedia it when you get home. It's called the preterist the preterist approach. That's right, the preterist view. And what the preterist, you know, it has that word pre in it. You can think of like prehistoric or the, the earlier view. What the preterist approach says, it says that everything in the book of Revelation was fulfilled and done with the first generation of Christians. So you can say from the year 70 up to the year 125. From the year 70 to the year 120, you know, the first generation, the first 50 years of Christian history, the preterist view says it was all done. It was all fulfilled. The Antichrist was already revealed. The image of the beast and the mark of the beast, the 666, and the Antichrist, all of that, the, the beast and Babylon and the destruction, all of it was fulfilled. Now, um, I, don't, I don't think it was all fulfilled in, in just the first century. So the preterist view, uh, it, it's, it goes too far. It goes too far in saying everything was fulfilled. I still think that there is fulfillment to come. So there's problems with the preterist view. But I think the nugget of truth in the preterist view, the nugget of truth is it forces us to look at the historical context. It says, hey, do some of our homework. There, there's some historical context here. So it forces us to look at that, which is good, which is good. So we'll take that away from the preterist view. The second view is the historicist view. The historicist view. The historicist view says that everything in Revelation, a lot, not everything, but a lot of it was fulfilled leading up to present day. And so the historicist perspective, um, almost with finality, says 
the Antichrist was Hitler, 1945, or something like that. It will place actual persons in history in the last 2,000 years and make a one-to-one correlation and say the Antichrist was this person. The mark of the beast was this. Uh, The state of Israel, for example, when Israel was established in 1948, when Israel was established, this was a very important piece of the fulfillment of Revelation. Now, the good and the bad, the pros and the cons. The good of the historicist view is that it sees Revelation as fulfilled throughout the course of history in our past. The problem with the historicist view is it's too sure of itself. It's too sure of itself. It says, this means this. The establishment of Israel means this. Hitler means this. And this means that. And therefore, it's, everything's kind of coming towards this. It's too sure of itself, the historicist view is. Not only is it too sure of itself, it's too Western. Honestly, it's too Western. It sees only for, it's only looking at Europe. It's only looking at events in Western part of the world. It's not looking at the growing Christian movement in Asia or in the, in the East, in different parts of the world. So it's, it's, it's too sure of itself. The good in it, though, the good of the historicist view is that it sees Revelation as being fulfilled throughout history. The third view is the futurist view. The futurist view completely discounts the past. In fact, oftentimes when taken to an extreme, the futurist view completely disregards historical context and says John was not concerned with events of his time. He was concerned with what's coming in the future. Um, when, when a lot of the very, very popular, popular uh, movies and Christian books on eschatology come from a futurist view where it's looking towards the future and seeing specific, we're looking for, you know, um, we're looking for certain events in history to happen. We're looking for, we're afraid of, of the number, the, the number 666. We're, 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 we're looking for the Antichrist to identify himself as some great powerful uniting leader or something like that. So we're only looking into the future. Pros and cons of the futurist view. I'll start with the pros. The pros of the futurist view is that it sees revelation not just as something that happened 2,000 years ago, but something that is still to come. I believe in the return of Christ. I don't believe it's just going to be some symbolic. I believe in the actual return of Christ. And the futurist view holds that, holds it well. It sees, it warns us to look for the future. That's a good thing. I believe in the return of Christ, and I do believe it's coming. The problem with the futurist view is it does not take into account context, history. And, uh, sometimes the, historic, the, the futurist view likes to, you know, you know like you, know, you, you shared a little bit about your wife, you know, share a little about you know, marriage. You know, it's like when you're arguing with your spouse and you know, he or she will just go, la, 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 I'm not listening to you, I'm not listening to you. All right, maybe not your spouse, it's childish, right? I'm not listening to you. La, 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 I'm not listening to you. Don't talk to me about the. Don't talk to me about Rome. I don't want to know about the context. I don't know. I don't want to know. The Revelation's just talking about you know, Kirk Cameron and um, you know, um, 
you know, some guy in a black suit that's going to come on the stage from Europe, then all this is going to happen. So what I'm saying is um, take the fingers out of your ears. Uh, not your ears, but I want to say to that view, take the fingers out of your ears. Listen. Don't, don't completely debunk and, or just dismiss what, what, what solid historical consensus, what the teaching on Revelation is. Don't just look to the future. Understand what Revelation is saying to its context in the past. The fourth and the last view is the idealist view. The idealist view. The idealist view, it says everything in Revelation is symbolic. None of it is really historically going to come true. It's just, it's just a symbol. Everything is symbolic. Now, I think uh, there's pros and, the pros and cons to this. I'll start with the pros. A lot of Revelation is symbolic. It is. That's the nature of apocalyptic literature. Let's say that you're going to fight back. You're going to rage against the machine, and you're going to say, Babylon, you really stink, man. You know, and you're, gonna, you're just gonna you're just gonna diss Babylon, and then at the end, you're just gonna you're gonna sign it anonymous. You don't want to get in trouble. So a lot of apocalyptic was coded so that in case a Babylonian official read this and he says, it's just talking about animals and numbers and beasts. It's 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 symbolic. The beast throughout not only New Testament, but Old Testament, uh, Old Testament literature, the beast was standard image. It was a symbol for a world empire. Babylon, I mean, Babylon. Babylon was a standard symbol for a superpower. Babylon often referred to, you know, the great power, Rome, Greece, Assyria. To this day, Babylon still, I think, symbolizes superpowers. So, yes, there's symbolism. But no, I don't think Revelation was just written for this kind of privatized individual. It doesn't mean anything. It's just all symbolic. It doesn't, you know, it, it's, 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 it doesn't really mean anything. Jesus is not coming actually in history. This is a mistake, friends. So in conclusion, what we're talking about, What is the right view? I think what we're talking about is a, a prehistoric, futuristic idealism view. <laughs> we're taking the best of all of these. How do we interpret Revelation correctly? I think we have to understand all of these perspectives. We have to understand that this is written first to a context. Secondly, we have to understand that Revelation was being fulfilled throughout the history leading up to this day. Third, we have to understand that Revelation is continually going to be fulfilled. And fourth, we have to understand that it is a book of images and symbols, not to be literally taken. Friends, as I conclude, I think the last thought here, the last thought as we conclude this CBE series is straight from the last few sermons that we've had. The last thought is watch carefully. Listen carefully. Watch how you listen. Don't just listen once. Listen twice. Have a second touch. Friends, if you have not read the Bible by this point, and you 
are wanting to grow in your faith, know, know the book. Know the book that you, you've, you've placed your faith in. Know the book. Look, if you can't read that whole thick, it's like, it's like a tome. It's like reading War and Peace. Oh my goodness, I fall asleep. Then start small. Start with Ephesians. How about that? It's like this thick, right? Or start with the Psalms. You know what I do every morning when I wake up? Even be, Well, not every morning, I have to be honest. I, I try, even before I check my email, I read a psalm. Sometimes I'll screenshot it, and I'll, put, I'll make it my wallpaper, and I'll, take, I'll tell you what I read this morning. And I'll take that psalm, Psalm 143, verse 10, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Screenshot it. Make it your wallpaper so that the first thing you see and you pray it throughout the day. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Teach me to do your will. Friends, what I'm trying to say is at the end of this CBE series, if you have not opened the book yet, if you've not become acquainted at all with the scriptures, you got to start. You got to start. You got to start somewhere. You don't have to start from Genesis. You certainly don't have to start from Leviticus or from Revelation. Start from Psalms. If you like wisdom, start from Proverbs. If you need some practical application and help, start from the epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Easy, easy stuff. If you like history, read Kings. If you like stories, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Or Genesis. Genesis is a beautiful, beautiful book. Read. And take off, take off, our, take off the glasses that you've had, the kid glasses. I'm sorry. Right? And, and read with new eyes. Read with new eyes. What does this mean? Underline. Look for repetition. If you see repetition, underline it. It means something. Look for themes. Highlight. Section off paragraphs. This is what this is talking about. Get involved. Don't, don't, don't leave the holy book just like a holy book. Get into it. So that if you accidentally drop it on any given day, it's highlighted and written all over. Read the book. That's the best thing I can say at the conclusion of the CBE series. Read the book. Listen to it. Hey, I'm not, I'm not strict. Listen to it. Listen to it audio. May the book placed on your tongue be sweet like honey. May it enrich your souls and give you life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us a renewed commitment today to your word. Not that because we have to kind of, I have to read the Bible, I have to read the Bible. Give us, Lord, a glimpse into the beauties, the wisdom. Help us to pray your word. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Lord, through this CBE series, Lord, we've been tremendously blessed. We've seen your scripture in a deep and profound way. I've learned a lot through it. And it's been learning for living. It's changed me. It's made me 
kinder. It's made me purer. It's made me more upright. It's guided my decisions. It's helped me to drive better, to operate better at work. Lord, your scriptures, they give me new life. So, Lord, may these words be honey on the tongues of everyone. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.